0: I knew we were talented engineers, but we we didn't have the network, we didn't have the connections to run a business. I gained those skills through other ventures. That transition from being an engineer into a business person is a massive transition. It's a complete shift mindset, and that took some time, Okay, and it, it took some learning and getting some mentoring as well before I could make that shift.
1: From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Su Mande Anjou, CEO and co-founder of RiverSafe. Although his parents wanted him to be a doctor, lawyer, or accountant, the sole computer at his school in Nigeria sparked a passion for technology, However, his journey wasn't fair or easy. Seward joins us to share how he took control of his potential and found success moving from security engineer to entrepreneur. The standard corporate ladder isn't built for everyone and it can even be exclusionary. So what can you do if you don't feel valued in your role? Should you only quit if you have another opportunity lined up? And what two pieces of advice can help a security professional become a business leader? Suid, if you would, first off, thank you for making the show today. And if you would, for the uninitiated, please, if you would, introduce yourself.
0: Yeah, thanks, Steve, for for having me on the show. My name is Suid Adinaju. I am the co-founder and CEO. Uh, of RiverSafe Limited. We're a professional services organization that specialises in cybersecurity, data operations,
1: and DevOps. Now, you didn't start there. So let's spend a second on getting into technology, which I think is interesting. You told me in an earlier conversation that it's something you always wanted. It's not something you found accidentally. Talk to us about that.
0: Yeah, so I wouldn't say I actually found technology accidentally, to be honest with you, because I came across my post on Facebook some years ago where a, an old schoolmate of mine put up what we call a slum book, which is kind of a, similar to a yearbook. When you leave high school at the time, you have a book that is kind of circulated that would give you the opportunity to reflect on your time at high school and also talk a little bit about what you feel that you want to do in the future. And interestingly, in that slum book, I saw in there that I said I'd like to be a computer engineer. To be honest with you, at the time in the late eighties, it's not particularly fancy career to want to have because coming from an African background, your parents would want you to either be a lawyer, a doctor, or an accountant.
1: So that was quite interesting for me to kind of find that one out through an old old schoolmate. So a couple things here: is something that you had forgotten that you put down? in the slum book, and then later discovered? Or was that was that the case? It was com- completely. I didn't even realize because uh, that I put something like that down.
0: Because at the time, the school I attended only had one computer to the entire school. So I'm not entirely
1: sure why that pricked my interest at, at such a young age. So help me out and pardon my ignorance. You've lived in the UK. You've lived in Nigeria. Slum book, I've never heard that before, ever, but I probably wouldn't. Is that a Nigerian thing or is that a UK thing and I'm just ignorant to both or where, where was that?
0: It's actually a Nigerian thing. It, it's similar to a yearbook in the UK. In the UK, you have a yearbook when people finish high school and, and that kind of is pretty much the same thing in terms of uh, it gets circulated around. People put down their
1: experience going through that school as well as their hopes for the future. I can remember having something similar, not as direct, but I had forgotten that in my first and second grade and a little bit in third, we had a computer class. Now I'm 44 years old, so this goes back a little bit. And we had a marble notebook. It's just a notebook that looks like it's marbled on the front. And within that, I had handwritten lines of code in basic and so you would write in BASIC, and this is a fairly young, I had forgotten I had this class, and effectively you're just drawing geometric shapes with commands in BASIC, but you were learning BASIC as a child, and I had forgotten that I had even had that, and, the, and my professor, my teacher, wrote a nice note in there. It's funny because later on in VB6, I was much later in university, I was very, very mediocre at best at writing code, but it's one of those similar things where our memories sometimes aren't true to ourselves. We forget what we say or what we do. And it was years later that I found this thing that I had forgotten I'd even had BASIC, even after I'd had VB6 training back in, in university. So it's sort of funny how that happens in life. It is funny because I,
0: I didn't realize that even at that time, I must have been like 16 or or so at the time uh, with not a lot of exposure to computers. For some reason, I, I got drawn to it at that young age. So interesting, like you said, how we forget about things that we've completely, you know, kind of loved when we were were younger. So yeah, very interesting.
1: Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think it's, you know, you wonder what are the things that you've had happened in your past that you've forgotten about that drives the way you choose career and friendships and all the other elements of life. I find that fascinating. I also find it interesting that you were talking about your mother really was focused on doctors and being an accountant and these sorts of things, a lawyer perhaps, and initially that there wasn't that much excitement about going into this. And you went in for math and engineering initially, didn't you, to university?
0: That's correct. So actually, when I applied to go into university, I applied for computer science and and mathematics. And I had a conversation with the professor at the time who was in charge of that department. And Because I'd done two years of studying or half-studying accounting, because my parents wanted me to do that initially, the professor at the time kind of steered me away from computer and mathematics because he felt that I was kind of more suited to business information systems instead, which kind of had a a mixture of computing and business modules. So it turned out that he was right. In as much as I I love computers, I, I kind of really... More more fascinated about how they help organizations to deliver their services rather than the core crux of of how a computer works. If you see what I mean. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. A question for you, and I, I, so I was—we're old enough that these these names are probably have gone away. I was a CIS major, computer information systems, and undergraduate. Still a business degree, but CIS concentration. So I had some CS classes and a bunch of business classes and programming and things like this. But the thing I found difficult, and I'm sure there's people feeling this today that are students at university, it was hard for me to understand the business problem when I had never really worked much professionally, at least in a business sense. Like you're given a case study, but you really don't know what the hell you're working on, really. I mean, you might know the code, you might be able to come up with a process, you might be able to research it some. But at least myself, I found it difficult to work on a synthetic problem. Did you ever feel that?
0: 100%. When I got onto the business information systems degree at the time, I found myself thriving more on you know the databases and the coding and the network modules. But there was a particular subject called the social impact of computing, which basically is... Very theoretical, it's more about the applicability of computer systems to the world we live in. I really struggled with that. As a matter of fact, I think I had to retake that module because I didn't pass it the first time. So it turned out that I found it boring at the time, but that was probably the reason why I didn't do well in it. It was not because I just didn't apply myself as I should have to it, but it's now the module that I use most in my daily life. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, Yeah. it is very interesting.
1: And, I mean, with some of the things we're seeing today, the social implications of technology, the implication of artificial intelligence in terms of the creation of content and the creation of code and all the ways that technology can be used both for good and bad, including manipulation of ideas and the difficulty of understanding what's a core truth. There, that, so that, that class, I'm sure if you were to retake it today, you mentioned it's, it's extremely interesting, but even just usability, even user behaviors, right? The, the majority of attacks, upwards of 90% involve a human element. So what's the human element of the use of technology as it relates to attack trends? I mean, fascinating subject, but it's interesting that it was a point of trouble. The younger version of you was like, I'm not interested as much.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't see the need for them at the time, you know. Again, it's about interest at that young age, isn't it? Because I was fascinated by computer science itself, I wasn't that interested in how it applies to the world that I lived in, if you see what I mean. And it's just amazing how as you grow in your career and you grow in your profession, you start to think more about how what you're doing impacts the business you're doing it for, if you see
1: what I mean. And it's a complete mindset shift. No question. I mean, I think that the other interesting thing is how do you fight that today? Meaning, in many cases, security people are only thinking about security, like security for security's sake and not security for the benefit of the business, right? You're there to enable that. And you still have to do your security work, but you have to remember why you're there. I see this all over the world. I just got back from Japan and this was a point of Discussion uh, in terms of understanding security and getting cooperation, but many of the folks were you know all over the world are are sort of forgetting that their mission really is something it's two sided, if you will. What you're thinking on that? I I see that as a security leadership flaw.
0: Yeah, so I think in my experience, and also working as a supplier to a lot of uh, large organizations, what I've seen is that the CISOs with Governance, risk, and compliance backgrounds are usually much better to work with than the technical ones, and that's to address your point exactly there. And the challenge is with the technical ones that they're, they're, they're so distracted by the new tech out there, you know, the shiny, flashing tech that that are being released in the market, as opposed to actually focusing on the risk to their business and how that can be mitigated, either through technology or through processes or through people. So the challenge is that if you're going to have leaders who are going to be focused on how to enable the business by ensuring that whatever the business is producing or putting out into the public is secure, then they need to be working with the business understanding the risks associated with because sometimes you can accept the risk as a business you don't necessarily have to put security in place if you have some mitigating controls in place if something does go wrong so it's about working with the business to understand the risk associated with what they intend to do and providing the right controls to ensure it's as secure as it could be bearing in mind that the business ultimately to make the decision.
1: I find it something that we're a little bit both blessed and cursed with where you have to have a passion for technology, I think, at least to get in and to do the job well early in career. And I don't know, I haven't thought about this. But I don't know if there's other careers that are similar to this. I mean, there has to be. But as you move up and move into leadership you have to give away the skills that sort of got you there in the first place in many cases. Now, things are changing and there's different types of leaders within information security. That all changes. But I find it fascinating that it's multiple careers in one, at least it has been for me and I know many others, where then you're focusing more on leadership. I don't know if you had done accounting or law, I don't know that that would be the same. I think you would still be doing accounting or law, maybe just you know, maybe running more of a program. Do you ever think about that? You know, the people that you work with and help that in many cases, you start off as a technician, but then at at the end of your career, as you move up or middle of your career, you're, you're no longer, or you probably shouldn't be. Do you encounter that? Or do you have thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. So it's interesting you say that because as you were just talking there, I was kind of thinking around just having a brainstorm, trying to figure out in my head, whether there's another profession that really mirrors what we have to do within the server. I'm not sure there, you know, like you already said, there probably is, but I'm not aware. And it's so important what you mentioned there. I started my life as an engineer on the keyboard, working within different technology spaces, starting from being a desktop engineer to a server engineer, into a network engineer, and then moving into firewalls before then, through my fascination with firewalls, you know, I became very passionate about security. And I was an engineer for many years. I was still a hands-on delivering technical solutions until 2016. However, after many years being an engineer and being a technical consultant, transitioning into running a business or being a leader taught me so many things. Because as engineers, I don't like saying this, but we're quite arrogant because we, we know what we know and we do know it very well. The challenge is that sometimes we deep in the weeds, uh, we, we can't put the context around what we're doing. But as a, as a leader, you, you need to kind of take yourself away from the nitty gritty, the, the you know, code that's running a particular application and think about the value that the application is delivering into the business. And, and that's a completely different mindset. And I, as I said, as an engineer, I used to think in ones and zeros. OK, so everything was black and white as far as I'm concerned, because it's input and output, isn't it, when it comes to computer programming and stuff like that. But when it comes to business, that, you know, you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing with all sorts of processes and, and procedures, and the mindset has to be completely different, because there isn't as black and white as it is when you're dealing with computers. So you then have to kind of think differently, and how to get the best out of people, and how to actually guide people In such a way that the overall outcome or the business objective to which you're working to is met and not too focused on the codes that has been written or the networks that have been created or the servers that are being built out, because then you lose focus on the main objective, which is we need to be here to provide a service to our customers, for example. So yeah, I see it as a, you pretty much have to Murph as a leader from being super technical to becoming more people-focused, which I find tough for engineers in my view.
1: It is, it is. And and actually, I want to have you share with us a a short story, and then I want to move into your move into Reuters. But you shared a story. You made a high-humility statement where you were a desktop engineer for a couple years, and anyone who's done desktop support, desktop engineering, always has crazy support tickets and stories. But the high-humility statement you made is that you may, you may not remember telling me this, but the statement you made is that uh, you really didn't know that much more than the people you were supporting. And not a lot of people would ad- would admit that. I think it, it's a lesson to those that are starting into tech that it's okay if you're not a super genius, that uh, as long as you're willing to learn. But the example you gave, the story was about a lady who needed a fix to her computer. Uh, would, could you quickly tell us that? I, I like the story, but I also love the statement.
0: Yeah, that was an interesting story. When uh, a situation occurred when I just started off, it was actually my first IT job and it was as a desktop engineer supporting Windows 3.11 back in the day. We got a support ticket saying there was a problem with this lady's computer and that it needed looking into it. So I picked up that ticket and printed it out as you do back in the day. It would have the location of where the user is is sat uh, and made my way to where she was and on that day, my boss also had a job, a ticket on the same floor. So we kind of went together. I got there and the lady said to me, um, my tea tray isn't working. It's Normally when I press this button, this tea tray comes out and it's pretty much now not coming out anymore. So I, I looked at it. I was, what, where is the tea tray she's talking about? Couldn't really see what she was talking about. So long story short, turned out that uh, she was actually referring to The cd-rom tray so she had never used it for a cd-rom she's always used it to kind of hold a teacup and that's what she thought the device was actually meant for at that time like i said it was my first job i I kind of sniggered and my boss i got a royal telling off by my boss because at the time i didn't know much about customer service i had to and you know that was my first lesson in customer service that i had to you know, keep a straight face and just be professional and talk her through her problem, even though it wasn't really a problem in at the time. But and make her feel that she don't don't make her look stupid. So that was basically my first experience of customer service.
1: Those examples exist. You know, anyone who's who's worked in a sock as well has many stories. I have one of my favorites is a gentleman who received um, malicious email and it was for a Starbucks coupon, but the link was instead of being spelled Starbucks, it was Starbucks. And he was repeatedly trying to get his free Starbucks coupon. And this is even after we told him that it was a malicious link and he's still wanting a sort of coupon, right? And, you know, again, back to the human element and trying to be polite, you know, when you have someone who is, his actions in this case was, could have very much harmed the organization. In fact, the malware was partially installed, right? So, and he still wanted, even after his machine was to be reimaged, after we performed the investigation, he still wanted, he still mentioned about the coupon, thinking that it was still a Starbucks site. And yeah, very important lesson to have some patience there. If we could, I want to speak briefly, if we could, about the move to Reuters, where as I understand it, you were part of a contract team at the time doing some very important work for them. They were kind of going through a transformation and seemingly everything was good. This was an important team, but then it it hit a little bit of a rough patch. Can you talk a little bit about what you were doing? And then it sounds like things were good until they weren't, which is ultimately kind of the genesis story of what you're doing today. But can you talk a bit about the start there and then kind of the transition period? And then I want to get into how you felt and why you felt that way.
0: Thank you very much. It's a journey that I like to share to people just to encourage people on and To also give people some hope that things can ultimately work out and things do ultimately work out if you put in the the hard work and the effort that it requires, but also be a little bit lucky. Anyway, basically, as the story goes, after many years in IT, uh, maybe about four or five years, I'd say, so not too long, I stumbled across firewalls in my networking days and got extremely fascinated by them. For me, it was the first time I came across a technology that helped to protect digital assets. And my passion for it just grew and intensified and I started delving a lot more into how the technology works, the different types of firewalls and so on and so forth. Anyway, I got a job at Reuters at the time, and it was in a group of about six highly skilled professionals. Typically, before then, any job I went into, I used to kind of be the star of the show. I tend to know a lot more than the the guys in the team. But on this particular occasion, the first day I started the job, I was thinking, what have I got myself into? Because I I just didn't understand what was going on. The network was so vast and complex. I couldn't wrap my head around it. I didn't see a way to actually learn how to get things going there. Anyway, long story short, I was working there. I started off being the, uh, working there as a contractor initially. And the role was quite fascinating because Reuters at the time were moving their old Reuters terminal. Basically, these were cable-delivered these lines that you had to have before you could get the feeds from mm-hmm. the news company at the time. Uh, they were moving this onto the internet uh, so that it could be delivered to home computers through the internet. So clearly, this was a complete change in the way the company was uh, delivering its products so and it also meant that this new shift needed to be secure otherwise you know you might as well be giving away the crown jewels for free so we were working in building out the company's security infrastructure to support that business move and it was quite interesting times because uh you know i was working with the most cutting edge security technologies out there really from our firewalls to proxies, to web filters, to network intrusion detection and prevention systems, you name it. You know, we were just putting everything in there, doing defense in depth, making sure there were two different types of firewalls. So you had proxy firewalls on the perimeter, you had stateful firewalls on the inside, you know, proper DMZs. And it was quite an interesting project. As we were working through that, the the dot-com bust happened, but the security was still booming. The company wanted to then, because of the knowledge that it was prevalent, what was existing within the, that particular team, the, the priority was to, to make us permanent. So they paid us handsomely, really, to become permanent members of staff. Whilst we were, you know, working as contractors, I was the only black person working in that group. At the time, to be perfectly honest with you, I didn't notice it at all. That was primarily because one at that junior level, I, I never really noticed diversity or lack of it. I just we had a, a mercenary type mentality. We're just there to get the work done. That's pretty much what we were there to do. But after two years of contracting and then we converted into permanent staff, things weren't quite right. I was like, hmm, what's going on here? All the guys in the team, they were kind of advancing in their careers, they were getting more responsibilities, you know, they were moving up in their career ladder and uh, I was kind of pretty stuck doing the same thing I'd been doing for a few years. So I thought, hmm, something's not quite right here. But again, at the time, I didn't really attribute it to anything. I just thought maybe I needed to work harder. So I, I thought, you know what, what's missing? Maybe if I did a, a master's in information security, because obviously I was quite passionate about security, but maybe that would just Give me the advantage that I need to kind of move forward. So I went off to uh, Royal Holloway and did my masters in information security. And I now kind of realise that it's quite typical of many ethnic minority people to feel that they needed to do a little bit more and push a bit harder, uh, shout a bit louder in order to get an opportunity. But also, when you shout loud, you don't shout too loud so that it doesn't upset people. So. Anyway, I went off, did my master's in information security, came whilst I was still working for the organization, came back and thought, I cannot carry on doing what I was doing. I need to kind of do something different. I'm, I'm always that sort of person anyway. After a few years of doing the same thing, I get quite bored of it. I I want to do the next thing. So I applied for a role in the risk team because I wanted something to broaden my security skill set and. When I did that I was quite pleased to actually see that the guy that was going to be interviewing me was one of the guys a few years earlier that interned in my team so he was now kind of running the risk department as a risk manager so I was thinking oh, at least I you know I know him I helped him in the industry when he was an intern and I was happy to see him doing well in his career as well but after the interview he said to me that I didn't have the relevant skill set for the role and I was like okay
1: that's interesting if I may First off, I think for many of the listeners here, the best thing we can do with the show is, this is incredibly important, what you're sharing, is give perspectives on the times when it was difficult and the retrospective analysis of life. And what you were doing, you were leaving a technical role. Well, let me take a step back even from that. You're reflecting to say, how can I be better? despite the adversity and all the other things that those are happening and the challenges of being good at technology, you ask your leadership team and your coworkers, hey, maybe I should go to university. Maybe I should add, let's really show everyone that I'm serious about this trade craft and I'm going to go learn even more. And then you take a step beyond that and say, you know what, I'm going to give away what's made me successful on the technology and maybe go learn GRC, which is a completely different mindset, skill set people have an entire career in that swim lane that's separate from the work you were doing that made you valuable before and sometimes you even have to go and maybe take a step back in order to build out the skill set you need to be the future leader, executive whatever that you want to be. And sometimes in that moment it's tough because you were a senior ultra knowledgeable whatever and now you're you have to sort of say okay, I know I can learn. I know I can teach myself. I know I need this as part of a bigger plan. I'm going to delay gratification so that I can achieve the goals I want.
0: You know, I think that's absolutely spot on. You can look at it in two ways. You can look at it. The first way is you can look at it and think, hang on a sec, I'm stuck here. I'm bored. I can carry on doing this. I'm being paid well to do this. But you can look at another way and think, you know what? I'd like to advance my knowledge, my skill set. I can try something different. I can go learn it. Yeah, you just don't obviously turn up and expect it to be handed to you, but you go educate yourself. But ultimately, if you do that, you've put in the time and the effort into doing that, you would expect that that should be rewarded in some shape or form. But if it isn't, then I guess that goes on to what I had to do later on in my career, which is you've got to look for another path
1: to trot. So before we move on, and I, this there's so many things happening right now in this story that I'm incredibly excited about. So I'm trying to like prepare the listener, but I want to interject one other thing. a different place and time, a different set of circumstances, but this really uh, hits my heart both in a fond way and kind of an angry way for a multitude of reasons and emotions, where in my own career, I was trying to make a move into information security and told for three years, roughly one interview a year that either i wasn't good enough i wasn't smart enough i was told i didn't have enough knowledge so i go and get a master's degree i go pay for my own sans training i do all these other things and then i'm told i'm too academic right so you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't and there's still not the same situation that, that you're in so even though it's it's heavy to me to think about even today many years later and i've done well beyond and sort of got out of that moment there's even more to it on your side so you're being told that, hey, this is not your game. You're not good enough at this, which to me, I'd want to say, you know what? You're right. And I wouldn't have said that in the moment if it were me because I wouldn't have been quick enough to say it. I would have just gotten angry, which is still OK, and use that as energy. But to say, you know what? Yeah, I don't know anything about GRC. I'm looking to round myself out. But I think and tell me if I'm wrong, that you began to get to the point you're like, this place doesn't value me doesn't value who i am and what i represent and it's it's maybe time to say you know nothing against the company but maybe this leadership group or this moment in time just the hell with this is that roughly it i
0: think i think it was it and i think primarily as well at the time my thinking was they don't value the work and the effort that i'm putting into trying to develop myself the extra work yeah the extra work because i didn't have to go off and do uh, a master's because the guys that were being promoted around me they didn't have to do what i was doing and me going over and beyond i had to take a salary sacrifice to be able to go and do the master's so i basically cut down my working hours from five days a week to two days a week and i was only being paid for two days a week so this was all being done on on my own time and my own money and Having done all of that and then getting the certification, getting the knowledge, which admittedly, I haven't got uh, risk experience, but I have obviously gone to school and learned to, not being given that opportunity, I, I I just said, I quit. You know, I didn't have a job I was going to. I just said, thank you,
1: but I'm off. There are a thousand people listening or more. I don't know how many, but there's probably many that are listening that are ready to quit their job, that are wanting to quit their job. They're, they're not appreciated. They're, it's, they've got a, a, sh- a shitty manager. They've got whatever. They're meeting, they're being unfairly treated for any reason, and they want to quit. And how did you prepare yourself? Because not everyone can afford to do that. Is it just a leap of faith? You're, you're like, hey, I've saved some money. I value myself enough to not even worry about this. And the question is, Many people say, don't leave until you've got the next thing. Even if you hate it, don't leave until you have the next job or the next business or opportunity built yet. Coach us, educate us on that because you made a strong choice there. But some advice I hear differs from what you did.
0: Yeah. So to be honest with you, whilst I was contracting, I made some financial decisions that gave me a good base. Okay. It didn't make that decision any easier. He made it easy. He made it easier rather it wasn't an easy decision because not having a, a source of income means whatever savings I had put away, I was going to be eating into that. So I didn't have an alternative source of income. I just had savings. So what I'd done, I'd made some financial decisions that gave me a good base in terms of I had a bit of savings that give me some cover whilst I look for another job. So that helped. But again, at the time also, the cybersecurity industry was, boom, it was thriving. So I knew that With the skill set that I had in terms of my working experience and also having just qualified from a renowned university, which was at Pioneer for information security at the time, I knew there was banking on the fact that I had this qualification that I could rely on as well. So I kind of just put some money aside to kind of give me a breathing room for a few months, which, you know, again, it was a risk, but I felt... It was a calculated risk in that i had working experience i had the right qualifications as well you know the reason why i made that decision but i just want to say one thing quickly i don't think anyone should be put in a position where they have to quit because they didn't feel valued if you see what i mean i don't think it's a good feeling to have if you're looking back but again Going back to the solution, which you kind of alluded to earlier on, it's about preparing for that situation and being able to take the chance
1: on yourself. I think that's the thing that many people struggle with this, whether they're being treated unfairly, whether they're just unhappy, they're not fulfilled. Many people get stuck in a job that they don't like but pays well, where they could maybe make half as much but be twice as happy or, you know, spend more time with their family, whatever it might be, right? And so you get caught into this trap. But what you went ahead and and did, and and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is out of this, was this then the genesis of RiverSafe?
0: 100%. So I didn't feel that I had a career in a corporate world. I felt that if I had to fulfill my potential, I I needed to take my destiny into my own hands. And that's what gave me the inspiration
1: to founding RiverSafe how did you talk about skill sets? So you have to provide a service that's valued in order to exchange your time for money. We all get that. And you had those skills and you had the desire. But starting a business, the skill sets there, if you've never done it before, there's a lot of things that there's lines of credit, there's payables and receivables, and setting up legal documents and contracts and quoting and payroll and taxes and how did you get that sorted yeah that was, that's an
0: interesting question because when we started over i was delivering technical solutions by day and being a, an accountant and an admin person by night it was tough it was super tough but yeah i met my co-founder uh, whilst i was working reuters as well and i knew we were talented engineers but we, we didn't have the network we didn't have the connections to run a business I gained those skills through other ventures. That transition from being an engineer into a business person is a massive transition. It's a complete shift of mindset. And that took some time. Okay, And it, it took some learning uh, and getting some mentoring as well before I could make that shift. However, one of the key things that helped us was because we knew we were talented engineers, we knew what we needed to do in terms of showing value to our customers. You can't fall to delivery. We always say that between ourselves. If you do a good job, doesn't matter if you're white, black, green, brown, lady or man, if you do a good job, people would recognize it. And that was our focus. Our focus at the time was to piggyback on vendors, sales force and deliver comprehensive premium services around their technologies into a customer. So basically accelerating time to value for the investment that the customer had made into the vendor's technology. And that was primarily our go-to-market strategy, was we look for a a technology that has a steep growth trajectory, and we piggyback on the the fact that they've got a good technology. But we deliver a comprehensive service offering around that, and we deliver a good job to our customers. For 10 years, we we didn't have a sales or marketing function. Uh, RiverSafe grew primarily through word of mouth and recommendations. Uh, so that's testament to the quality of service that we deliver as an organization that fueled our growth.
1: 10 years of no no sales or marketing, but partnering with with technology groups. Uh, so you're sort of using some of their sales and marketing in a way, but you still had to deliver your piece. What, If I may ask, and I don't know that we said it earlier, what year was the founding year when you were doing technology by day and administrative by night? What year was that? The company itself was incorporated in 2008, but we didn't really start
0: going properly until 2010. That was when we employed our first staff and put money aside to actually see if we could fund them for a year and
1: not go bust. That's a big leap, right? That's that's hiring someone and saying, oh goodness, I may not be able to pay them for more than this period of time if we're not successful.
0: 100%, it puts you under enormous pressure, but uh, they say diamonds are formed out of
1: Huge pressure. Tell me a little bit about getting started, right? You had to have. I'm. I'm, I was actually on your website earlier. You've got some some great brands that you partner with, great customers. You got to get your first big break. So how did that happen?
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's quite interesting, actually. So we got our first break from great allyship. So we got our first break with a senior manager at a huge corporation who had the choice to use well-established system integrator for the same work we were bidding for. But he saw the passion, the hard work that we were putting into trying to build our company. And we were already delivering some work for him. And we were doing an excellent job at delivering to his requirements at the time. But he had a bid from a large system integrator. And he had a bid from us. And for whatever reasons, I'm so grateful to him. He gave us our break by deciding to go to take a gamble on us. It was a calculated gamble on his side because we were working for him for about six months prior, and we were doing a great, great job for him. But it was still a big piece of work. And if he had gone wrong, he would have been in trouble with his job. But he took a chance on us. And he was a German
1: guy, really lovely individual. And that's how we got our break. That had to have been a big moment of excitement, too, where you have this, you know, there's a lot of things on the line, a lot of money on the line, a big opportunity. It's it's sort of out in front. And you get that. And then you can look back today, and you obviously are crediting him and this opportunity. It seems like that was one of the that really set you up for a lot of good future momentum, then it it seems right, because you're pointing back to this as a kind of a, a turning point. What happens after that?
0: Yeah, for sure it was a turning point because uh, before then we were just doing trickles of work and you start to kind of doubt whether, well, I was certainly starting to doubt whether we could actually kick it off and get it going properly. But with that opportunity coming in, and he probably doesn't know about that, that was the turning point for us. Like you said, it was very exciting. You know, it was an opportunity that required us to to scale up quite quickly in order to be able to meet the, the demand. But we had the template. what we wanted to do we had been doing this at a smaller scale previously so it was just how do we get more people to do what we had been doing between ourselves and the one person uh, we had to kind of i think we had to get in 10 or 12 people uh, straight away for that particular project Uh, and we started off by bringing in contractors and consultants so not overly exposing ourselves by bringing on board permanent staff but as we saw the opportunities start to kind of mature and grow, we became more comfortable in employing full-time employees. And then, again, it wasn't easy because we still didn't have a finance team. We didn't have a back office team. We didn't have a service delivery team. We didn't have project managers. We didn't have all the infrastructure that you would have, you would see in like uh, what we have today, for example. And so that meant that between myself and, and my co-founder, we were doing all that work. So we're doing 14, 16-hour shifts, you know, just making sure that, uh, you know, everyone was on point, that the delivery was to the standard that we were doing because we were still hands-on. We were doing the technical delivery ourselves as well. But more importantly, you know, it's just making sure that the guys that we had brought on board were actually also delivering to the to the level, the high level, that we knew we had to do it. Uh, in order to maintain that account and also to be able to take that template to other potential and prospective customers so
1: it was tough i can tell you that so it's already been a favor for you to be on the show and i'm not in a position to ask of of another uh, at all but i have found great peace in my life and some joy in thinking back to the people that have helped me in sometimes big ways and sometimes even just small ways. I think back to some teachers I had in high school that where many thought the, the, the statement was, Steve's probably more likely to go to prison than he is do anything important with his life. And that's a direct quote. But I had two teachers that really helped me out and were pivotal moments. And so reaching back out to them many, many years later was a bit of therapy and, and they enjoyed the message. If the gentleman is still around, and if you haven't reached out, uh, maybe you already have, but to just to let him know that, hey, you you may not realize how important you are to us. That might be a fun thing and a rewarding thing. It might make his day. I think that's a really powerful advice, actually. And I will be taking that one up for sure. (laughs) It might even be, I mean, again, I'm full of bad ideas, but it might even be an interesting story to inspire others that, you know, and make it part of the River Safe story as well. Just sort of thinking maybe foolishly, but creatively as well. I'm not a creative, but the origin story, everybody loves that. And uh, you really have, a, you have two, right? You have your idea to leave and all the, the circumstances that come with that. And then you have this big opportunity that really turns the corner. It's really kind of a point in a movie, if you will, right?
0: Absolutely. I completely agree with you. Thanks for that. I think that's such a great idea.
1: Oh, no. It might be a bad one in practice. I don't know. But in my mind and in my heart, it sounds fantastic in the moment. And so I think that we always end on the same question. But before I get to that, do you have any advice for those that may be in a similar position that think that maybe the corporate world may not be for them? And they maybe are talented and skilled and and want to do something like this, but maybe they're not sure how. Maybe it's lack of knowledge or skill in terms of the business elements or whatever? What is there a piece of advice you have for those that are pondering this?
0: Yeah, I've got two things that I would have done differently, which I think would help answer that question. The first thing is to kind of get some business, go on a business course, to learn how to manage or, you know, manage or set up a business. I think that would have helped me avoid a few mistakes that I made. Uh, so that's the first one. The second one is to get a mentor. Okay, I think that is crucial. If you want to do something that someone else is, you know, you want to tread a path that someone else is being through, why don't you, instead of you hitting your feet against the rock as you go through that path, why don't you just go ask that somebody who's been through that point and see where they've what lessons they've learned, what are the things that they've been able to what experiences have they have they garnered going through that path and let them share that with you. Once they share that with you, then it gives you a better footing in terms of how you could set up your own company or try doing something differently on your own. And, and that, that, those are the two advice that I would offer.
1: I think that's excellent advice. You know, the, the mentorship thing in particular. Which is not an easy thing to to find, but when you, you, and it may be a multitude of people, maybe more than one, but, you know, you you alluded to, you know, how to structure the business, you know, probably legally managing, you know, elements of incorporation. All these things are not naturally discussed. You know, entrepreneurship within tech is sometimes hard-earned, right, and and hard-learned. So it's the unification there is very important. Because you mentioned, you know, starting off, you may not even have had all the back office systems set up yet as you're bidding on these big contracts, right? If you would spend a second just for the listener, you know, we've got listeners all over the world. You know, your your company now has, you know, a handful of focuses. I, I'm on your site right now. DevOps, data ops, cybersecurity. Do you mainly focus on cybersecurity or is it kind of an equal mix of the three?
0: Uh, it's an equal mix of the three. We we do cyber security is primarily where we historically where we started off from. Clearly, we've worked on a, quite a few digital transformation programs where we have then developed. Initially, we developed a, a DevSecOps practice, which we then basically expanded to provide DevOps as well. And that's just primarily because going back to your original question around making sure that the business or that security is enabling the business. So we started off doing DevSecOps, but realized that we were alienating the engineering team, and then we we, we kind of brought them into the fold by providing them with the whole DevOps offering. And then we do data operations, which is primarily to provide insight into the various data that are coming out of the various technologies that we help implement. So that's more around uh, ensuring that uh, you have actionable insights from the output of the technologies that we
1: help to support. So you've shared a lot with us. I've got one final question. I'm going to slightly modify it for your benefit and, and to the listener. It might be a more uh, interesting answer. What I would usually say is pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you? But I'm going to modify it. You're not a, a new security leader and a new entrepreneur, but you know maybe these things take a, a new way of thinking. So um, what does being a security leader and more importantly, an entrepreneur mean to you as it relates to uh, our chat today
0: yeah i think it means uh, for me a, a new leader is about that is about the people less to do about the technology It's more to do about guiding people serving people having empathy i like the saying a servant leader okay so rather than leading just from the top but also serving the people if you're leading people you need to serve them and that's, that's my interpretation of leader or a security leader or a,
1: an entrepreneur, to have a servitude type of attitude. Fantastic. Sued, so, thank you so much for being with us today. I've immensely appreciated this conversation. And we've even gone longer than usual. So this is going to be a long show for everyone because there's so much to unpack. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me. And I hope the listeners get some really good insight and some open knowledge from what we've shared today. They absolutely will.
1: Thank you so much. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.